Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Joining me today is Jude Kelly, the award-winning theatre director, producer, and founder of WOW, the Women of the World Foundation. Through its flagship WOW festivals, as well as year-round events and school programmes, WOW was designed to ensure a high-profile cultural space existed for women's stories to be shared. Jude describes that moment in 2010 when WOW first launched as the moment she truly came out as a woman. And in 2018, she chose to step back from her role as artistic director of the Southbank Centre to focus on growing this incredible initiative, which is now the world's biggest, most comprehensive festival, celebrating women, girls and non-binary people. To tell us more, Jude, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, it's great to see you. Let's talk about coming out as a woman in 2010. What, what was the moment of realisation or the moment of self-agency that propelled you to leave a major career in theatre to become, in effect, a full-time activist? <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to unpick your description there a little bit. But, I mean, obviously, I am a cisgendered woman, as you would describe under, you know, the, the circumstances that we now understand gender. I've always been a heterosexual woman. I have children. I have grandchildren now. And ever since I was a very young woman, I've always understood that gender inequality existed, that I objected to that, that it mm. would affect me and millions of girls and women, and that I wanted to do something about it. But in a very long career of the arts and theatre, it was something that ran, if you like, in parallel to what I was doing. The, the, the main thrust of everything I've ever wanted to do was to tell stories, hence being a theatre director, and to challenge the idea that some people's stories are more important than others mm. and that the places that you tell those stories need to be sort of sacrosanct so that, you know, I've, I've always challenged the idea that theatre was for people who had education, a certain kind of background, and that the stories should mainly be about those people. Mm. So in a sense, you know, I've always been very interested in cultural activism. But when I was the artistic director of the Southbank Centre, which is, you know, arguably one of the largest jobs you can get full stop, you know, largest uh, European centre for the arts, and me as a woman, incredibly rare for a woman to hold that job when I got it. And it's a product, of course, of women being on a long journey towards equality, you know, because mm. of girls getting education, birth control and being able to go to university, I got that job. But when I got that job, it became absolutely apparent to me that most of the things that I was programming in this extraordinary centre, or the orchestras, most of the past literature, you know, the, the most of the, the, the works in the gallery, they were all still focused on male creativity mm -hmm. because that's our canon, isn't it, throughout yeah. the world. So that's what made me go, I have to now put all my eggs in the basket called gender equality. So it became something where I said, look, I've got one life, I've lived it very well, but now I want to focus on saying this urgency around equality for girls and women, I'm going to put everything into it. That's really what happened. Right. And the thing, I, you know, that, that phrase, coming out as a woman. I, I, I interviewed Jürgen Meyer recently, who was the former CEO of Siemens UK, and he talked about coming out as a gay male. And he said that he found he could be himself. And he'd spent all his professional career, one of the most successful corporate executives in the UK and globally, hiding an aspect of himself. Did you find that that 2010 what 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 revealed to you what 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 did you find out about yourself in terms of taking that step as you said from one of the biggest jobs in european and global theater into doing something that you felt a calling for what what did you learn about yourself in doing that 
Jean. Well, uh, well, first of all, I just want to say that the, the coming out, in inverted commas, is my kind of jokey way yes, no, I of explaining things to people, because I don't want to equate the pain of being utterly, in, you know, invisibilized through so much that, that somebody who is LGBTQ plus whatever would feel to what I'm talking about. But I do it as a way of people understanding that you live, to a certain extent, a double life if you are dodging all the time the kind of reality of saying to people, no, this is not true. No, that is not equal. I mean, you can't live your whole life confronting because, you know, you'd have no friends, you'd be exhausted. But what it did make me do was, was say that with somebody of my then status, if I don't have the courage to call out on a continual basis inequality, and to challenge it at all points, and then to say, what are we going to do about it? Then I'm making other people who have less status and more vulnerability about jobs, careers, and lives, you know, much more lonely. So that's what I felt. And what it's done to me is it's, I suppose it's made me feel that I can continue to be courageous and that the older I get, the more duty I think I have to be courageous because you've got less boats to burn because you've got less less years to live. (laughs) Well, but also in the years that you have lived, I mean, you know, I'm I'm thinking about something I read where you spoke about your ambition to go into theatre directing and were told by one university lecturer that there were only three female directors One's a lesbian, one's retired, and one's just killed herself. Which would you like to be? I mean, mm. you know, these must. I'm trying to get a sense of when you are confronted with that type of ingrained prejudice, resistance to change. How does that sort of? How does that make you feel? And what do you do about it? Think about those chapters in your life. I mean, I met you when you were the founding director of the of the West Yorkshire Playhouse, and I thought. I can tell you when I met you, I thought, oh my gosh, she's amazing. What a confident sort of switched on individual. But there must have been things in terms of your interior monologue about how you Mm. were feeling about things and how you were feeling about the process of change or the absence of it. And I'm trying to sort of understand about how that kind of route to cultural activism evolved and changed in you as as you grew. Well, you know, there's luck luck involved in, in many things. There's the luck of your genetic makeup. There's the luck of your upbringing. And there's the luck of the, the point in history that you're upbringing is happening. And I think I've had lots of luck to build a confidence in me, which says what you're telling me is unjust and I'm not going to back down. Now, obviously, that can be you know something that people don't like in you. But I'm one of four daughters. I'm, I was championed by my dad and my mum. But by, my dad particularly, you know, really believed in supporting the girls do things. Mm. And he he was you know, he also was upwardly mobile. He's one of 14 children in a, a Catholic background in Liverpool. And uh, we lived in, a, we, we, they had a mixed marriage and, and everything about the, the sort of family dialogue, I suppose, was what can you do for yourself to move forward, but also take everybody with you? You know, don't think this is just about your life. And so that inner dialogue about duty, I think, to me and others, I mean, I couldn't have framed it when I was young around the kind of word for human rights, mm-hmm. the phrase human rights. But I do now. I do understand that to make full use of yourself is your human right. And that if you're going to give yourself your own human right, then you should be looking sideways and thinking everybody else should be on this journey together. So that's, I think, how my mind and my imagination works. You know, my imagination is always fueled by what is the world that it's going to be when it's better mm-hmm. than this? Because right. I know that I'm living in a world that is better than the one before. So some other people did that for me and they didn't know who I was. So I'm very excited by a better world. Right. You know, so, I don't so think... 
So don't think of it as a political in a kind of, uh, you know, sort of thin way of describing politics, but just like human society can keep moving forward. So when somebody says something to me that like that hostile, homophobic, anti-older people, everything about that, that phrase about, you know, there are only three women directors, it kind of, it could have really demolished me. And of course, I've never forgotten this, but it made me think, wow, you know, think of all the people who you want to marginalise in your mind this, this person saying it. And I just felt I'm not going to be one of those people. So it produced in me more courage. But the thing that's happened to me more recently is a, a greater understanding of how many bits of luck allowed me to have that courage. Mm. And that is not everybody's situation. And mm. it's up to me, I think, to kind of show courage on behalf of other people as well. Uh, well said. I mean, n- not losing the kind of like the early years. Growing up in Liverpool, your head head teacher was was William Pobjoy, who was John Lennon's, was another alum. And apparently he encouraged a spirit of creativity, I, I was reading. I mean, I'm just wondering about, you know, you talked about background, family background. Do you think do you think the city has has shaped you in in any way in terms of the defiance to sort of not not accept the status quo as as the way things should be in any way? I think Liverpool prides itself sometimes a bit too much on being you know feisty, edgy, bullshit. You know all of these words that people use about Liverpudlians. I mean, I think you'll find this actually. I think with quite a lot of particular cities around the world where they refuse the idea that they have to sort of stand in line and doff their cap behind a capital Mm. city or anybody else. So I think there is that spirit in Liverpool. I also think in Liverpool, it had an incredible cultural life and a very egalitarian cultural life. Because obviously when I was a little girl, you know, the Beatles had already gone to London, but, you know, we had the Beatles in the cavern and the Mersey sounds, and we also had the Mersey poets, but we also had the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. So there was a kind of sweeping sense that, yeah, of course we do culture. And we also think sing folk songs. And, you know, so it was very lively in my mind that it was all possible. But I think that I didn't really understand, and I do now, the, the various ways that people have of siloing, you know, northern people, small people, women, you know, and, and the, the, the kind of hierarchy towards the Oxbridge white male, which I know is very, you know, we talk about this a lot now. And I'm sure if you're, if you're an Oxbridge white male, you must be really fed up a bit. But I'm nevertheless... From, I'm from Sheffield, Jude. I'm not from Oxbridge. <laughs> But, but, you know, but we have in society, obviously, over history, you know, made very clear to people where they sit in the hierarchy. And I think a lot of people in Liverpool want to jump up and go, that's not where I sit. However, there is also a quite strong sense in Liverpool and lots of places, which is don't get above yourself. Hmm. And, and, And you live in that contradictory space that like it's almost disloyal to get too much above yourself because you're leaving behind the people who, who can't get above themselves. Right. So and I, I think it's a it's a tricky place to be. So if you were to think about, you know, because I, I think it's an interesting phrase you used earlier in, in the interview of cultural activism. And I, and I suppose listening to this interview, listeners will get a, a, a good sense of what drives the activism. What drove the culture as, you know, what drove that as being the kind of the, the route that you wanted to travel down in terms of the career choices you've, you, you've ultimately gone on to make? Well, I think this is the the root of who I am as an animal, if you like. I have always told stories, you know, in the backyard, in the back garden, getting people together, all the neighbours and saying, let's make up a play. You know, that's from when I was seven. And making up a play is a combination of make-believe 
And what do we know about life's experience? You know, even at seven, you know, what are the stories we want to tell? So I would say leaving, leaving aside all issues of cultural activism, I am at root somebody who loves telling human stories. Mm. And I would do that above all else. And the cultural activism part started to turn to kind of arrive halfway through university, really, when I realized that what I said earlier, some people's stories are given more importance than others. Some people's stories are never told and some people's stories are distorted. Mm. And that is when I began to think that that isn't truthful to humanity. And if theatre is a method of humans telling each other how they feel and what's happening in the world then that theatre has got to represent everybody and be, and be there for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's it, simply, you know, classical music, I mean, Mozart needs to be there for everyone. Sure, he was growing up at a time when, you know, being illiterate was normal for the majority of the population, and certainly most people wouldn't have had music education, but we're not there now. So, you know, what Mozart dreamt <clears throat> through his body and his ears and his everything about him has got to be available for everyone. Mm. And while we still have an idea that the arts is only sort of suitable for some and not for others, and we do have that ingrained in society, we all have to change that. So mm. my activism is to do with the arts, really, being an example of, of injustice. And it's probably the most significant example because we know that a primary activity of humans is to use art from you know, the caves onwards to say, this is who I am, this is how I feel. And yeah. if you take that away from people and say, well, it's not really your means of expression, you're dehumanizing at some level. Mm. And I mean, I love the idea about, about storytelling. And I think, you know, storytelling is, is probably a good segue into talking about WOW, because, of course, it, it's, a, it's a big part of the, I suppose, the creative mechanism about how you're bringing the issues to life. Why don't you frame WOW and its work for, for listeners, both in terms of the foundation and, and the festival? Well, it began in 2010 to celebrate a 100th anniversary of International Women's Day in, in the UK. And I only thought it would be one year festival. I hadn't, you know, in my mind, I wasn't creating a global movement, but obviously all these years later, here we are, which is exciting. I was very aware at the time that I had lots of women, particularly young women, saying to me, we don't need feminism. And what is feminism anyway? I don't like the word, you know, and we're equal now, aren't we? And I just knew that that was a lie, that we were far, far from equal. And even kind of pointing across to another country and saying, well, yes, I mean, they're of course they're not equal in Pakistan, they're not equal in, you know, but, but we are, that this was a lie that we were telling ourselves. So I wanted to say, look, there's a huge amount of change still to make, but let's make it by at least celebrating what we've already done. I mean, women and girls, despite, you know, injustice, have done absolutely everything, maybe only once, maybe in difficult circumstances, but you're like, there's almost nothing that girls and women haven't done, despite being told that they shouldn't or oughtn't to. And so it's amazing to be able to say, let's celebrate all this achievement. That was my first instinct. Let's have a festival which goes, look what's, look what's happening. But let's celebrate in that people who are in struggle to still make change happen. Mm-hmm. Because then amongst the celebration, you get a sort of stamina and a happiness and a joy. And you think, well, I could do that too. So... I truly believe that, you know, if you say to somebody, come to a festival, they're not going to be put off by the word culture or art or seminar or symposium. They're going to think, oh, that sounds like fun. I'll probably get a good, you know, chat, something to eat and drink. I can browse around. So the methodology of festivals, which I've really done all my life as as an art maker, I applied to the idea of story, but story that isn't fictitious. Our stories now. Is the vibe 
quite quite joyful. I mean, you, that's oh, a word. Yes. You, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to get to say because I'm 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 thinking about like say what so I interviewed the, the creators of, of One Young World, you know, which is which is a sort of major festival for young people, and I've been to it, and I and the, it, it feels like you're part of something incredible. I'm trying to get into the sense of the emotional vibe, the feeling of when you bring a lot of people that have got common purpose, have got stories of their own, and actually find. I guess shared values and and shared determination. I'm, I, what, what what's the net outcome of that, Jude? Yeah, well, people realise that it, a it's joyful to be a human, which it is, in my opinion, and b it's joyful to have a point in your life when you can acknowledge, if you like, your tribe, mm. and to say my tribe is all women and non-binary people, all looking together for how to realize the, their potential, how to realize their community potential, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, because it's got music, I mean, we've got like this year, we've got like um, Muslim women fences on display. You know, we have pop-up poetry. We have a marketplace that people can browse about. It is like a kind of Glastonbury for for everybody. By the mm. way, men and boys come. It isn't just, you know, it's not women only. I'm, I'm coming. I'm bringing my daughters. <laughs> Good. Well, lots of lots of people. And my do. wife. Uh, you don't, you, and you don't have a justification. You could have come without any female accompaniment whatsoever. The You'd team's coming. But but I I think that the, the vibe is that it's it's iconoclastic. It's not angry. It's mm. it's happy. It's it's welcoming. And you know, in a, and a key thing is you know it's for. Like we have under under tens feminist corner, so there's eight year olds there, there's ninety year olds there, all kinds of different women. Because we go out and we locate a whole range of stories and and things that are happening. So the mix of people is incredibly unusual, you know, mm. because it's all of civil and political life. You know, you'll have doctors there, you'll have lawyers there, you'll have weavers there, you know, you'll have grannies there who are like me realizing what it's like to have to kind of deal with not just caring for your own children but your children's children and they're all swapping stories and the 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 most sort of high profile people are on platforms with people who have no sort of societal status but are doing amazing things Mm. and actually they're the people who who are usually getting people to be the most excited Right. You know, it, 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 because yes, you haven't heard of them, but boy, are they doing incredible things. I mean, so, so I think that in doing these interviews, I've done two years of Changemakers interviews where I've interviewed incredible people, exactly as you said, people, some people you've never heard of, but their stories are just, just they are the wow factor through to people that are household names. And what I feel is that over that period is that these interviews have changed me, you know, my, my consciousness as a, as a human being, my appreciation for issues. I, I feel a lot of people that are founders of things, you know, of course, the easiest way to understand it is through the lens of what they do for others. But what's WOW done for you, Jude, in terms of how you've evolved as a person? I think that it's, first of all, it's an incredible privilege to be able to found something and sustain it because you are in charge. <laughs> like, I mean, that's what one could unpack the whole kind of thing about like being in charge. But it means that you're at the absolutely pointy end of yourself. Like, you know, you have got to be truthful about what you said you would do and are you doing it? And that kind of daily accountability is if you face it, it's like, I don't know, I've never had an enema, but I was going to say, it's like a, sort of truth, a truth enema. Truth <laughs> enema. Not, not, not a very nice, uh, forget that. <laughs> what I'm saying is, 
it, 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 you're forced to confront something all the time, which is, mm. you know, your, your own truthfulness and your own courage. And I think that is very, very, that's a privilege. The, the, the thing as well that happens is that by meeting so many different kinds of people, you understand the complexities of stuff and stops you being sort of, you know, binary in your ideas Mm-hmm. Which, which is always got, you know, biases, whatever you do. And it, it flushes out in you the, the things that you've got to unlearn. I mean, we all... The, to- the toxins. Are, well, yes. Yeah. Well, the toxins, but Social also toxins. this is the thing. Social toxins. I mean, look, we're all groomed into mm. our place in society and into believing and trusting the society we're in as we have inherited it, which means that we're always living slightly in the past. And there are good things, of course, about tradition, but we're also sort of inheriting belief systems, which we have to unlock in ourselves. So, you know, if I just think about COVID, for example, you know, one of the things that I found life-changing in COVID was realising that, you know, somebody like me can camouflage my vulnerabilities and insecurities because, you know, I don't personally have to go to the food bank every day mm. and see, and people see me go to the food bank. I can't do that. Uh, I mean, I can do that. I can camouflage it. And other people just can't. And I suddenly re- thought, you know, it's it's cruel for people to use privilege to camouflage vulnerability when other people have no choice, whether it's around mental health or domestic violence or, or, or money or whatever. And it, it's one more step of thinking, I must be always honest about what I am going through. And, you know, maybe what WOW has done for me, you know, is this phrase coming out. It's made me live professionally and personally in the same space. Uh, it's interesting. I interviewed uh, Lena Nair, who is the new CEO of, of Chanel, and she talks about... The biggest, you know, the best advice you give to leaders is about vulnerability. Is that actually that re- revealing yourself, releasing yourself, is a very important thing to do, and that COVID was the reason actually where you know leaders had to accept that they didn't have all the answers, they couldn't camouflage themselves. And just when you were speaking now, I thought, well, that, that felt like 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 fairly common ground there in terms of an understanding that. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, do you, do you think is your view that the kind of those that are in pulling the levers of power are becoming more humane or human in in their decisions. I mean, of course, we're speaking on a fairly bleak day where, you know, Russia is invading Ukraine. But but when you think about maybe in the world of business or in or in our in our own small patch in the UK, I mean, you, you talked about being being positive, but do you see that daily sense of reveal of release of actually letting go of some of those shackles of the past? Yeah, I think that we are talking more commonly now about those things. And I think that there is a recognition. And I think this is why female leadership or women-led, you know, senses of purpose is becoming something which men are also wanting to be included in the conversations around. You know, for a very long time, women's legitimacy as leaders was really being measured by how much they could display, if you like, what traditional male-led leadership looked like, which was mm. quite a lot of command and control, not vulnerable, you know, schematic, uh, not organic, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there came a point when quite a lot of women went, actually, do you know what? Not only do we not want to do it, it isn't even good anymore. It isn't even appropriate anymore, if it ever was. And in a world that needs a lot of consensual behaviour, a lot of cooperation, et cetera, we have another thing that we'd like to do. And I think that includes vulnerability, it includes empathy, it includes doubt. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it, but, you know, this, is, this requires you not only to make a change in your own behaviour, it requires you to constantly put the society you live in 
under pressure to maintain values that head in that direction. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt about it that we can look back at a period of political history where the values were very much everyone to themselves, highest winner, winner takes all. And that is cruel, yeah. I think. And, mm. and it, it's, it's, a, it's a road that's got a hard end, at the, uh, you know, for an awful lot of people. And I, so I think it's not just about individuals and saying... And wasteful, I'm, well, it's cruel and wasteful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, honestly, and, and certainly now with everything we know about the planet, it's out of keeping with the way that the planet has mm. been created and therefore how we're going to operate. So all of this makes me say, yes, individual leaders can be talking about vulnerability and personal journeys and et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera but please don't think... It's okay to stop there. This is yeah. not just about individuals. It's about a collective idea about what our society needs to be like. And this might be the first chapter of change. Let's talk about from that first chapter to the next generation. What's your take about the new generation of young girls becoming young women facing the world? I'm trying to think about the compare and contrast in terms of how you feel the prospects are for an emerging generation. Mm. Very, very complex. I mean, you know, if you look at the grim side of things, just the news the other day that the metaverse is already full of stuff that 12 and 13 yeah. year olds are accessing that demean and humiliate girls and women, you know, in the in the most sort of modernized section of the Western world. That tells you an awful lot about how far we have still to go. Yes. To, to protect and advance girls and women because they are still humiliated by all, all of this stuff and it'll lead to all kinds of issues. And at the same time, I see that, you know, not just the Greta Thunbergs and the Malalas, but there's tons and tons of, I'll use 12 and 13 year olds because I think they're pivotal. You know, they are also saying, I have a voice, I want to use my voice and I want the, my voice to be better you know, in terms of how it's heard and what it's for. Idealism tends to be a natural factor in a seven-year-old and you know and they usually maintain it Mm. into their teens and I think that we you know we squander that uh, at our peril and we should be helping young women preserve it right one 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 of the things that often happens with young women is that they are sort of groomed into being well behaved and I hope that the schools of that say well focus your creativity and your energy and your intelligence but still hold on to your idea that you're there to improve the world, not to obey the world. Mm-hmm. And getting that getting that right in a young person, obviously it's tricky, but it's, it's essential, I think. Well, I can tell you, as, as, a, as a dad of two girls, of eight, eight and 10-year-olds, when you just said about into the teen, you know, the sort of into their teenage years, what are the points that you would say for parents to actually watch out for with, with, with young girls actually thinking about, you know, that it, it is quite clear that there are, that in a lot of experiences you see young kids who go into their teens as incredibly imaginative, creative young people with personal agency, with a real sense of self, and then something happens. And mm. I suppose the, the thing that I'd ask is that, what are the tipping points that educators, parents, support structures should look out for in terms of ensuring that, I suppose, that inner spark, that inner wow continues to live on? Well, look, you know, I'm not a child psychologist. Yeah. And having raised two children 
who went through a very difficult teenage era. And, and I was a very difficult teenager. You know, I don't know how much, you know, hormones and everything else plays in just the chaos of trying mm. to grow up. So I'm not sure how to solve that one. But what I do know is that if you just take my example, I went through a very chaotic period when I was incredibly unruly and, and quite kind of very misbehaving. And it was my head teacher that you referred to earlier who said, I can see your passion is making up stories. Use the assembly hall at lunchtime and start your own drama group. And what that did for me was he said, I can see what you love doing. I'm going to take it seriously. I'm not going to say that's a waste of time or shouldn't you be doing something else. I'm going to seriously invest for you mm -hmm. in that idea of yourself. That was transformational. So mm -hmm. I think one, you know, it is incredibly important that people take seriously what a, a young person is saying they're interested in. And even though if the, if the older person goes, well, that seems a waste of time. It's not really about that, is it? It's about sort of, this is who I am at the moment. And obviously, you know, if that's, if what they're doing, if what they're interested in is sex and drugs in a self-harming way, that can be, that's problematic. I'm not saying, well, let's just go ahead and do it. But you have to get to the bottom of what it is that the person feels will make them have a good sense of worth. Mm -hmm. And very often, I think we dismiss those things uh, because we say, well, it's not our sense of what worth looks like. So I, I just think you have to be in dialogue and encouragement all the time. Right. Now, we are rapidly running out of time, but I do want to try and wedge a couple of questions in before before we finish. Now, what, another aspect of, of WOW is, is its non-binary nature as well, is that it's open to anyone who identifies as a woman and focuses on, on, on non-binary issues as part of that. Tell us a bit about kind of when that happened in in your in, in the process of wow and actually what's the message you want to sort of provide um to the outside world in terms of providing a platform for for um promoting um non-binary issues yes i should say by the way that wow how operates all over the world and, you know, just after this podcast, I'm about to do a keynote speech for WOW in Pakistan. I'm going to WOW Istanbul shortly. So, you know, there are all different kinds of cultural frameworks, including China, that WOW operates in. And the whole world is on a journey to unlearn ideas that straight jacketed gender mm -hmm. and rethink, well, what does gender mean? And the fluidity that particularly younger people, but not only younger people, are asking for is, I think, uh, you know, undoubtedly a, a challenge as anything that says you knew the world like that. Actually, the world could be now like this. That's always very difficult for people because we like certainty. Um, but I've lived through watching horrendous objection to the LGBTQ plus community mm -hmm. to even exist. And of course, that still pertains in, in parts of the world. And then when I see that no one else has the right to define for somebody else who they are and how they love mm. and how well, they identify, said. Then, said. then I think, well, that's mm. my position. You know, mm. I, I will not be defining for somebody else anything. In, in terms of the, sort of the trans debate, I interviewed a non-binary artist called Anil Sebastian, and he said that the trans narrative has always been either erased, mistold or weaponized. What's your take on a, on, a, on a statement like that in the context of the wider debate <clears throat> that's going on at the moment? There's a marvellous documentary that's come out recently about the role that Hollywood has had in, uh, you know, demonising and uh, just sort of 
yeah, as I say, demonizing and, and making a laughing stock of anything to do with trans. And uh, it's worth watching. I can't remember its title for a minute, but if you look it up, trans in Hollywood, you'll find it. We'll um, find it. We'll put it on the, the lockdown. And it's really very good because it, it sort of makes you realize how images are put in your head. And then you kind of re- keep reinforming yourself that that's what the problem is. And I think that it's true that it, it, it has othered, this othering, this othering is always about fear. Mm. And then you give yourself a justification for your fear being the reason why you do things. So each different group who has been othered or marginalized have their own historical contexts and reasons and arguments around that as to why it's happened. But if I just took race as a parallel for a minute, what people are told about, you know, why it's okay to other and discriminate, we are now saying that's horrendous. Of course not. But only some of the world is saying that. Mm. Other parts of the world are still saying it's okay. Uh, But that idea that somebody is somehow slightly dehumanized or very much dehumanized is something you can't allow to happen. And so where I stand is that I think that we're at a point in history where inclusion of everybody as an equal mortal must be our goal. I'm regrettably on to my last question. So I'm going to make it a gift, if I may. I'm going to... um encourage you to to travel back in our time machine to that moment where that university lecturer spoke to you about the three female directors and ask you to give some advice to yourself then, given what you know now. I don't know that I have advice different from what I instinctively did. I stored it up and have kept it ever since as an example of somebody who thought they were well-meaning and funny but did something that was potentially going to destroy somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And I was able to go, I'm going to put that in the freezer. I'll bring it out every so often and look at it, but it's not going to sit in my stomach mm. because if it sits there in my stomach, you know, it will slowly poison me and my confidence. So that thing, which is compartmentalizing, I don't know how I learned to do it or whether it's instinctive, but it's been very helpful. Sometimes you could say that's too much disassociation and it's, a, it's an interesting question, but that's for another therapy session. <laughs> but <laughs> the advice is don't brush over something, but put it somewhere in yourself that you'll be able to refer to, but won't harm you. Mm-hmm. Jude Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Pleasure. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? I think this could-